0: Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host Darcy with me in the co-pilot seat. How are you doing, Darcy?
1: I'm doing okay. I think I'm coming down with something, which sucks. I feel like I'm always sick, but uh, no, I know it feels like it's not the coronavirus, right? It feels like, (laughs) like I have like allergies, but allergy medicine doesn't work. It doesn't make me feel better. So I don't know. Maybe it is the Wu-Tang coronavirus. I don't know. I hope not. Oh it's probably God. not.
0: Hey. Darcy actually picked out a really super cool story to share with the podcast listeners this week. And it really has, it's very, very relevant. And as soon as she like put it forward immediately, I was like, oh my God, we've talked about this like a dozen times. And it's such an interesting topic. Darcy, why don't you go ahead and share your intro um, topic with the listeners?
1: Yeah. So I found this article on NBCnews.com. And again, it is about genetic Genealogy and using that to uh, solve murders. But this one, the way they went about this one was a little different, and it'll be an interesting thing to see what happens. So this happened in Valdosta, Georgia, which is southern Georgia. And it says, On an October morning in 2018, Eleanor Holmes and her husband left home to run an errand and found two men inside their front gate. They introduced themselves as detectives from Orlando, Florida, and said they needed the couple's help. Standing in the driveway, the casually-dressed detectives said they were trying to identify someone who'd been found dead many years prior. They were looking for the person's relatives and were using DNA and genealogical records to stitch together a family tree that they hoped would lead them to a name. Pretty standard fare, right? Yeah. That's how we hear about a lot of these cases getting solved. They said they had already gotten DNA from... Eleanor's sister and an aunt and now they wanted hers and so she had already known about the detective's visit to her sister and she was worried that someone in her family had died without anybody knowing about it. She also had relatives in Orlando including a niece whom she hadn't heard from in more than 10 years so she agreed to get it. It didn't sound unusual. Right.
0: She wasn't like thinking no red flags. Yeah,
1: she knew people in, in Orlando she had family there and she hadn't spoken to them in a long time so she agreed. So they took a cheek swab And they went about their way. They gave her a business card, and they drove away. uh, A few days later, she got a frantic phone call from the girlfriend of one of her sons, Benjamin Holmes Jr. Okay. Orlando police had just arrested him for fatally shooting a college student, Christine Frank, in her Florida home in 2001. Wow. They had used the DNA and genealogical records to tie him to the crime. So basically, what happened is the police went to this woman's home, told her they were trying to solve a crime that they had an unknown decedent, and they were trying to solve a family to put together a family tree to identify this woman who had been killed. But that's not what really happened. What really happened is they suspected her son, and they were they tricked her into giving this DNA sample so that they could arrest her son. And tie his DNA to this murder.
0: That is so crazy.
1: So what do you think about that?
0: I can't imagine that that's legal. It sounds so deceptive.
1: It's incredibly deceptive. And the thing that I don't know is, I mean, they, she legally gave them the, the swab. She was deceived into doing it, but she legally said, you know, consented to a D- DNA sample.
0: Even though so they I told her something completely different as to why they were collecting it. Right. It kind of brings to mind when they lie to um, people that are suspected criminals in the interrogation. Exactly. And they're allowed to do Now, that. which
1: that is legal. Yeah, that is legal. Now, is it legal when you don't have somebody in custody? That's That's the question I don't know,
0: you know? I just don't know what statute would be applicable to that.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? There may not be one, Theft yeah. by
0: deception? Like, I, th- that it's not really theft because she agreed to give her DNA.
1: Right. But she consented under false circumstances, I just you know? I just don't
0: understand why they didn't get her DNA in another way instead of lying. They could always just grab a bottle or a can from her freaking garbage can and get her DNA that way. And then they don't have to deceive and lie. Right.
1: Right, and they had. I mean, why? At the same time, I mean, I would like to think if I was suspected of a murder, heaven forbid, my parents would give over their DNA. Well, I'm adopted, so it doesn't matter. But you know what I mean. Like in, in that instance, I I would like to think that a parent wouldn't protect their child. Well,
0: my parents would so absolutely it, give DNA, a hundred percent. Right, I'm a hundred percent certain of right. that. Right, but I do believe through our experiences with a lot of these cases and listening to the podcast that I've listened to, that there are parents that would hide for their child. Sure. I just, I I, I don't, or they, they just are so in love with their child and just don't see any of the criminal aspects or any of the bad things and just don't want to believe that their child does has ever done anything bad.
1: Right. And that back to your point, why? I mean, if if they could have gotten DNA surreptitiously, they wouldn't have even have have a, have to get it from the mother. They could have gotten it from didn't the they? son that That's they actually what I want suspected. To know. Why
0: did they just not want to put yeah. the work in? Did they think oh, it would be so much easier to just go and lie and get it right away? Like I just don't understand why they didn't just do know. that little bit of extra legwork and then because I I guarantee you this will be challenged in a court of law and it will p- most likely go up to appeal and possibly the Supreme Court because th- this is a very hot button issue.
1: Yeah, it'll be very interesting because to me, I, we talked about this before, I have an issue with the police being able to tap into these DNA databases beca- without, you know, somebody fully consenting to it, even though the ones, you know, GEDmatch and all of that, that is open and it's in the small print. I still have an issue with that, them being able to use that to solve crimes. I just, I'm not comfortable With them having open access to that kind of thing, I just feel in so Um, many
0: instances it's laziness that there are other ways that you could find the person. Now, granted, it could be in the case of the Golden State Killer, like that, like they had been trying for decades to find that, and it just. Could they just couldn't do it? So I get it. There are some cases, right. and those are, are probably few and far in between, where it is extremely hard to gather evidence. The person is just so smart and so clever, and so and that guy was a law enforcement um, person right. that had been involved in that industry prior. So he knew what the police looked for. He knew how to hide it. He knew all the things that he would need to know to hide that and to be the, the perfect criminal. So I get it. There are cases like that, right. but I really honestly feel that the vast majority of cases that are coming through there are not like that. They they're just basically it, copping out and saying, you know, pardon the uh, the the use of that term, but just basically being lazy.
1: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see all of the legal windfall for I mean like the Jed match, all of those. In addition to this new facet of using these DNA databases, it's just—I mean—and maybe, maybe they had done stuff like this before without using the, you know, genetic genealogy databases. You know, maybe like they had lied to people before to get DNA oh, I'm from sure family members to tie. I'm absolutely,
0: one hundred percent certain that they've yeah. done that before. But this is really—I yeah. think—one of the first cases that we're hearing about where somebody knew of it and is protesting yeah. the the use of that. Meat yeah, of gaining DNA,
1: right? And I mean, we're. This isn't even t- to talk about, you know, the fact that somebody was in fact murdered, and they, that they were able to solve this crime. That is allegedly, you know, that that is a very good thing. We we don't want somebody to, you know, have an unsolved murder. That's terrible for that person's family.
0: Right. But. But on the other hand, with the amount of time, effort and money that they're probably going to have to spend to try this case and go up for appeal and possibly further appeal after that, is it worth it? Is it going to stretch this out and be not worth? You know what I mean? Is it going to be millions and millions of dollars because they obtained it this way as opposed to getting it in a a more legal and reasonable manner?
1: Right. And. Is it going to delay
0: justice even further?
1: Right. And the whole thing about prosecution is, you know, the onus is on the prosecution. You have to do it correct, correctly. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this case. Maybe nothing happens with this case and we don't hear about it ever again. But I saw I saw this headline and I just thought this is such a crazy story. We have to talk about this.
0: Right. Well, and then part of the problem, too, is you get one bite at that apple. Mm -hmm. If you screw it up. You don't get another chance to try that person for murder. That person could potentially be a murderer and walk free because the police screwed that up, constitutionally speaking. right? I'm sure that there are other people that have different viewpoints on this, and I would be absolutely interested and love for somebody to shoot us an email if they have a different viewpoint on this, and we would totally read it on the air. 100%. Oh,
1: absolutely. So,
0: like, shoot us an email, DM us, tweet at us, whatever. Tell us your opinion, because I... I want to hear what other people think about this. It's such a new thing to be hearing about this that I want to know what other people think about this issue as well as just us. Because we clearly have very strong opinions on this one way or the other. And I just want to know if it's just us or if other people also feel this way. Yeah. I just haven't heard a lot about it from other podcasts or news about this issue.
1: I haven't either. And I don't know why that is. It seems like it's a very good topic for debate. You know what I mean?
0: It's on trend for sure. And there's yeah. a lot of people that are doing these tests now. And what's really interesting too is I had, believe it or not, some woman contacted me through one of these DNA websites. Because I think I did like 23andMe or whatever. This woman contacted me. She is a relative of, on my mom's side from my grandfather. Oh, really? The one that, the one that was electrocuted and yeah. put to death. And she wow. didn't know any of the story. She didn't know any of it. Because he had splintered off from that side of the family and kind of done his own thing. And she had no idea. So basically, I was telling her the story of this. And she was just like flabbergasted. Wow. She was, uh, she's a cousin. So she was, my grandfather and her grandfather were um, brothers.
1: Okay, wow.
0: And they had come from Canada. So she lives in Canada now. And my grandfather had come down with his siblings or either he had come down from Canada and splintered off and gone to like Oregon and Washington State and Alaska and all that. Or the family had gone up to Canada after Mm -hmm. they splintered off from him. But in any case, this was the side of the family from my mother's father. And they had no idea about the criminal background. They had no idea that he had been put to death. I mean, it was just astounding to have this conversation with this woman and look at her features and see that this is my family because we don't we don't know a lot about my mom's side of the family
1: right it's been
0: very hush hush and given the history and the background on that nobody wants to talk about it nobody wants to be associated with that side of the family so we know very little right but what we do know is now from all this dna testing that we've had done through these ancestry websites and it's interesting because we are also very distantly related to marie antoinette Oh really? Yeah, and Look at you. Nicholas Nicholas Copernicus. Okay. So some interesting stuff in the background there. Yeah. We also have, um, I believe, a portion of our DNA is Neanderthal DNA. So it's oh, for like real? I, I believe there's like one to three percent of the population that has that genetic background mm-hmm. in there. So it's like an older strain before the Neanderthals split off from the current human beings. Or something like that. I yeah. don't know the whole history behind it, but there are some people that before the Neanderthals died off, they mated with the, the strain of humans that are now yeah. existing. And so some people still have that in their blood, in their genes. Yeah,
1: I don't have any of that in mine. I did twenty-three meals, so I don't I don't have any of that. Um, Isn't that
0: interesting though? I just found it yeah. so fascinating. I was just like it just gives you a different um, makeup when it comes to digesting certain foods, when it comes mm-hmm. to allergies, when it comes to uh projected Um, longevity, diseases, Mm -hmm. like it's just, it's super, super interesting. Well, and I did that stuff
1: because I don't have any medical history for my family. So that's the reason I did it. Um, and that was beneficial. I mean, I don't know how much that's worth, like compared to genetic testing that you can go get done at a physician's office, but it was nice to have at least something, you know, did you
0: get to tell like who your distant relatives were, like who you might potentially be related to if anybody famous or like. I didn't opt into that part of it. Super interesting.
1: Well, I didn't want to. I don't have any interest in meeting my biological parents. This is a whole different tangent of not the purpose that we started the show. But um, I didn't have any interest in meeting my biological parents or biological siblings because I do know I had them. Um, So I didn't.
0: But this is hundreds of years back, like beyond your current relatives. This is like right, but you can't access that. You can't access that without doing the
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I opted out of that.
0: Well, I mean, here's the thing. You can choose to look at that without letting anybody communicate with you. Or, I know, or but like I, did, I wasn't interested
1: in, in finding anybody.
0: But anyway, it's interesting yeah. that they can pull that up and, and trace you to certain people and certain historic times yeah. and events, and it's just really super cool. Anyway, um, main case for the day, yeah? Unless you have anything else to add on the genealogy I, issue?
1: I don't. If, uh, if I'll keep following this case and keep an eye on it. And if we hear anything else about it, we'll certainly talk about it again.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we, I'm sure we will. I mean, yeah. it just seems like it, it literally pops up like every other day now with something going on with the DNA testing. Yeah. So the case that we're going to talk about today is the Tita family. And it's called, you know, the Tita Family Murders. Um, I got a lot of my information online, and I'll post the articles in the show notes, and also from the Minds of Madness podcast. Oh, yeah. They did a really cool show on it. I like that podcast. It's a little bit different. Um, It's very scripted, and it's one guy kind of telling a story. But um, And sometimes it can be a little... Like really, it's a little over dramatic in its descriptions and <laughs> at times, but other than that, like it, they have a really solid fact base and I like that they do really good research as well, but yeah. Anyway, this is their story. Um this takes place in 1990, so it's a little bit of an older okay. story, but I know how you love the 90s. So I do love like, the 90s, <laughs> man. Can't resist telling a 90s, 90s story. <laughs> and this is about a family who was vacationing in their very remote cabin in Oakley, Utah. Have, I don't know if you know of Oakley, Utah.
1: I don't know of Oakley, Utah. I've only ever been to Southern Utah when I was driving across the country, and Southern Utah is gorgeous.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure it's absolutely stunning out there, but it is very, very remote, very, very sparsely populated. Not a lot going out there, going on out there, and there are a lot of cabins and homes and things where people do not necessarily have access to it for a good portion of the year. They have to use snowmobiles to get to run their homes. So it's very remote.
1: So this is Oakley is outside of Salt Lake city. Sorry to interrupt. Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Just for reference, point of reference. Rolf, Kay, Lene, Trisha, they're a little family here. Rolf and Kay are the mom and dad, Linnae, Trisha, And there's a son as well. I believe his name is Sean. Yes. Um, We're all getting ready for their annual Christmas party. They were in this peaceful cabin out in the middle of nowhere. They were having this little vacation. They would do this every year. They would take the family a little bit before Christmas and go spend Christmas at this beautiful cabin in Oakley, Utah. And just celebrate and get really festive and decorate the house and get a tree and just... It sounds like a really idyllic and just yeah. beautiful way to spend Christmas, right? And, and it's yeah. everything has got snow covering the ground and it's trees everywhere. And it just sounds like a, just an absolutely magical place to be. But um, that particular day in December 1990, things changed for this family and the cabin that they had once held so dear to them became the scene of a horrific crime, we are going to unwrap that in just a moment, but let's start with a little bit of background. Rolf Tita was born September 29th, 1939. He was German and came to the U.S. at age 11. When he got to the U.S., he met Kay Tidwell, who was in her early 20s, and she was from Nevada. And they immediately hit it off and got married May 24th, 1963. They married in Salt Lake City, Utah, again, close to their little Oakley cabin, and they knew they wanted a very large family. They were very active church members. They had very strong faith, Um, but this didn't seem like it was in the cards for them. They had trouble conceiving and Mm. having children, so they adopted first, and they adopted Linnae, and then Sean, who was their second child, and then while they were adopting Sean, Kay actually discovered that she was pregnant. Okay. Which happens. Sometimes when you give up and let it go, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, snap.
1: I have friends that
0: happen, too. Yeah. So then they got pregnant with a baby girl named Trisha. And at that point, they relocated to Humboldt, Texas, where Rolf worked in commercial laundry solutions. And they ended up opening an equipment type of a business called Skyline Equipment in 1969 in Houston, Texas. And they were pretty prosperous. They did very well in that business. Kay was a great mom to the three kids, and they considered her both their friend and their mom. And then they would go every year to this remote cabin in Oakley, Utah, where they would fly out there, and then they would take the snowmobiles up to the cabin. This town of Oakley is a very, very small town with only about 600 people in the 1990s. And wow, th- their particular little slice of heaven was about two and a half miles from the main road, very very isolated, and as I mentioned earlier, you could only reach it via snowmobile when there was snow on the ground. There are also no neighbors. It's super peaceful and quiet. Winter nineteen ninety. The family makes the trek out to the cabin in Oakley, December twentieth. Kay and Sean flew in. Kay's sister picks them up from the airport. Rolf, Lene and Trisha will be coming the next day. So the, the two came kind of in preparation to get things ready, get the cabin set up, you know, open things up, air it out, yeah. put the sheets on the bed, you know, do all that kind of typical stuff. They get there, they go straight to the cabin, they unpack and they start prepping for their annual Christmas party. They parked their car in the garage and they get onto the snowmobiles and head back to the house. The weather was super cold, about 20 degrees or minus 20 degrees oh. at that time of the year. little chilly. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah. So they loaded the snowmobiles with all their stuff. And about halfway back to the cabin, they pass a guy who is walking, wearing clothing that doesn't really seem appropriate. He's kind of wearing a light jacket, Levi's, and Hmm. sneakers. So it's like, it's 20 degrees below zero. That's not appropriate clothing for that kind of weather. But Uh -uh. being that they're, you know, cautious and neighborly, Kay asks Kay stops the snowmobile and asks if this guy needs any help. And immediately he takes off and does not answer. Oh, so slightly suspicious.
1: Yeah. Red flag. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Kay thinks this is a little bit strange. And after dinner, her sister and her son, Sean call it a day and go to bed. And the next day, Rolf gets there with Lene. So just as kind of a point of reference, Sean is 17, Lene is 22, and Trisha is 16. Okay. Um, as soon as the rest of the family gets to the cabin, Kay tells them about the dude that they'd seen the previous day. She's like, hey, you know, we saw this guy out walking. It seemed a little suspicious. And she's very, very cautious at that point and tells her husband, I need you to go get the guns out of the car because they carried guns with them. I don't know if it was a matter of protection or for animals or Back then, if you're in kind of a remote area, then a lot of people would have guns just for protection against wild animals or wolves or whatever, right? So she tells him, her husband Rolf, to go get the guns out of the car. She doesn't trust this guy just kind of wandering around. I don't know if she thinks he's going to come up to the cabin or if she's going to break into the cars and steal the stuff out of the cars, but she asked him to go get the guns. Her intuition at that point is just kind of going crazy, and she's like, I'm going to listen to it. Go get the guns. Sure. In that particular time period in that area, the 1990s, it was very safe and very quiet in that area. There were very, very, very few crimes. It was super calm. But Kay just has this bad feeling. And uh, eventually, Rolf goes and gets the guns, puts them in the snowmobile. And then Kay's sister, Claudia, leaves and goes to run errands. And the family starts to relax. They put up the tree, the decorations. They start wrapping presents. They hang the stockings. And then they decide that they're going to go into town for some last minute Christmas shopping. So the son Sean goes to Aunt Claudia's house to stay the night because he wants to get some stuff done in town as well and I guess Claudia lived closer to town or in town. Okay. At that point, Linay, Kay, Rolf and Trisha finish up and they stay the night at Kay's mom's place. And Kay's mom is 76-year-old Beth. She had recently lost most of her mobility and her eyesight in a car accident that happened in 1983, mm. which was not really all that recent. If it's the 90s and this happened in 1983, anyway. Right. Um, she had lost her mobility and she had lost a lot of her sight, but she was still, you know, pretty active and positive. And about noon on December 22nd, part of the family returns to the cabin. So it's Lenae, Beth, and Kay. So just to recap, Beth is Kay's mom, Kay is the Mm -hmm. mom, and Linnaeus is the daughter. Okay. So The oldest daughter, right? Yes. mm -hmm, Okay. The 22-year-old one. Yeah. Linnaeus looks at the house and sees that there's somebody in the window of the master bedroom, and she can see this from the driveway, right? So she's like, hmm. But she doesn't say anything because she thinks it's one of her cousins that had arrived early and was waiting to surprise them. Okay. okay. Um, evidently, this family cabin was a gathering place for everyone—the cousins, aunts, uncles—and mm-hmm. people would randomly show up and share the space. And it was just right. this wonderful, magical place for everyone to share. So she just thinks that one of the cousins has showed up early right. for the Christmas celebration and is trying to surprise them. It wasn't unusual. Right.
1: Yeah. So that's not like atypical for that to happen. I, I, I'm just apprehensive because obviously of the nature of our show and the fact right. that they've seen somebody <laughs> walking around, you know, just a couple days prior.
0: Yeah. yeah, so Lene runs upstairs and starts running her hands under some warm water in the kitchen to warm up because it's super cold out there. Yeah, and she thinks she sees her cousin David hiding behind the fridge.
1: Oh gosh! I, like this yeah. is like setting up like a scary story. <laughs> I know.
0: It's like <laughs> da, 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 da. and she thinks it's a joke, and so she just kind of like confronts him, going "Ha ha!" and it's not her cousin. Oh no. It's some dude with frizzy hair in a gray sweatshirt, and he's got a pistol. And Lene is ordered to call her family, everyone that's there, obviously, Mm -hmm. because some of them aren't there yet, aren't back at the house. She's ordered to have everyone else come back in the house, and that's when she sees a second man. (gasps) And he's got super thick glasses, and he is waiting as well.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: He also has a gun. So at that point, Kay, Beth, and Lene are there, and they are freaking out with good reason. Kay tries to reason with them and basically is like, hey, you know, we'll give you guys anything you want. You know, money, take my Mm -hmm. purse, whatever we have in the house, take it. It's yours and just go. Mm -hmm. But the men don't respond. They just basically tell them to shut up and they shoot Kay. Now, Lene sees them shoot their grandmother, Beth, as well, point blank in the head.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And then they shoot her again multiple times. (gasps) There is blood everywhere, and then everything is quiet. So, essentially, these two dudes just shot the mom and the grandmother. And Linnea is the only one alive right then. Oh, no. And she is basically praying and, like, you know, please, Lord, let me survive this. And the men tell her to shut up. The prayers aren't going to work. And they tell her that they're devil worshipers as well. Ugh. Yeah, so they're, like they're just, just kind of adding, they're just adding insults to injury. At that yeah, point. and they take Kay and Beth's jewelry and cash, and they drag Linay into the bedroom and put a sock in her mouth and cover it with duct tape. Oh, at that point, then they tie her hands and feet. But one of the guys is actually he feels kind of bad. The guy with the glasses, and he brings the family dog in to comfort Linay while she's like freaking out, which. I guess it's generous of the guy, but not generous because he just killed two people. Right. Um, and then he drags Kay and Beth outside onto the patio and covers them up with snow. And then the, these two men start to clean up the bloody mess until they get tired. And then they're like, F it. We're not touching this anymore. So then they're just chilling. So by then, it's about 2.45 p.m. And they start to hear the snowmobiles. And it's Rolf and Tricia. Now, immediately, Lene is freaking out because yeah. she knows what's going to happen. But the frizzy haired man pulls Lene up with a gun and presses it to her back. Rolf and Trisha pull up. The man then puts a ski mask on and runs at them, points <sighs> points the gun at them and tells them to get into the cabin. Don't speak. Don't make any you know, irrational moves. Just get into the cabin. And Rolf can tell by looking at his daughter, Lene that Kay and Beth are gone. Like, she just Mm. gives him the look that's like, you know, no. So he, at that point, is absolutely devastated, and he's ordered to hand over any money he has. So he has about $100 in his pocket, and he tosses it onto the floor, and the man in the gray sweatshirt with the frizzy hair orders the other guy in the glasses to shoot Rolf the dad okay but the guy in the glasses can't do it he hesitates and he's like i'm just not the kind of person that can do this and the frizzy haired guy was the one that shot the other two. So, oh. well uh, allegedly the frizzy hair dude then tries to shoot rolf and his gun misfires twice well then the third shot actually happens and hits rolf in the face At which point, Trisha, the younger daughter, the 16 year old, starts freaking out. And the two intruders then start dumping gas all over the cabin and they're going to burn it because they want to destroy any evidence that might potentially be on this scene. They shoot Rolf one more time in the head to make sure he's dead. Mm. They douse the body with gas and they light him on fire. (laughs) The two men load up the snowmobiles and they put Lene and Trisha in as shields and force them to drive the snowmobiles while the two men hold guns behind them.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Can you imagine? No. These two, you know, young women just completely freaking out. They have no idea what's going to happen. They've just seen their father, mother, and grandmother be killed right in front of them. I mean... uh, (sighs) Unbelievable! I would be just absolutely yeah. catatonic by that point. I would not There's be able to There's only so move. much you can handle. I wonder yeah. what happened to the dog, because they don't say what happened to the dog. Anyway, um, as they start to leave, Trisha and Lene see their uncle Randy heading towards the cabin. Oh, no, no. And he calls out, and get this, these two girls, unbelievable. He calls out, and he's waving at them as they pass. And these two girls basically act like they have no idea who he is. They're like, that's just some crazy dude. Must be some friendly guy from town. We have no idea who that is. So they're protecting him. Yes. They instinctively know that if they say anything and then yeah. he comes to them, he will get shot as well. So they, yeah. pro- like, There's some, we don't know this dude. They're like, he just must be some friendly local dude. And they just kind of give him right. like a weird look and wave back. And this probably saved his life.
1: It also probably now, let him know something's up, too. You
0: exactly. Know. So all four of these folks get into the family's Lincoln Town car that was parked in the garage at the bottom of the property. So they have this garage that you have to get, park your car in, and then you take the snowmobiles from the garage to the cabin. So they took okay. the snowmobiles to the garage, they pulled the family's Lincoln Town car out, and pulled out. And they, the two girls had to enter a key code to get in there, and that's also interesting. But Trisha is forced into the front passenger seat with the frizzy hair guy, and Linnea is in the back seat with the second man. Um, they tell the girls that they plan to drive to New York. And at that point, once they get to New York, they would release Trisha and Linnea. And the two girls are like, yeah, right. Yeah. For a second. But they really don't have any other choice at that point. Right. Um, as they leave the garage, they see Uncle Randy again. <laughs> and mm. Randy is like walking towards the car and yelling at them to stop. Like, stop, stop. Yeah. Like, why why are you me, acting like me. you don't know yeah. me? And the sisters again pretend that they don't know him. And they're just like, keep driving. We don't know who this weird dude is. And the intruders just, like, let it go. Wow. Um, then they see a Summit County Sheriff's car appear from nowhere and start to follow the town <gasps> car. And at that point, the two intruders are like freaking out because they're yeah. like, "Speed up, speed up! Run the red lights, go through roadblocks." They there are roadblocks set up, and they are trying to lose the cops. They're going over ninety miles per hour at certain points, and this is like Whoa. in the middle of winter with snow on the ground. Oh my god! This is not going to end well. Um, the chase ends forty miles southwest of the family's cabin when the town car spins out and runs into an embankment. Uh, Everyone is unharmed, though. Oh, my gosh. Um, but the police and civilians surround the car. Trish and Lene are like... Civilians
1: are on the car.
0: Just people, random people from the neighborhood and from the area that heard about it and are like, oh my we're going to go help. Whoa. And Trish and Lene just basically duck down and they're like, oh, right. please let us make it out of this. Because these guys, the cops and everybody else have guns and they're basically pointing at these dudes and like, hey, this is not going to end well if you don't yeah. surrender. There was an exchange of gunfire, and the police ended up dragging the two men out of the car and into custody. Luckily, the two girls were uninjured. They made it out okay. After they had sped away from the scene, Randy was approached by another man on a snowmobile. And get this. Guess who it was.
1: Wait, what? Uh, Did they have a third person?
0: No, it was Rolf, the dad. What? He had survived. He played dead, despite having two shots to his head. Get this. Holy crap. The gun that they shot him with was actually birdshot pellet in the gun. Not regular buckshot. It was a shotgun they shot him with. This was... Oh, my god! Absolutely a miracle. But he wasn't going to, like, tell them that, right? Yeah. He just faked like he was mortally wounded. And as soon as the men took off, Rolf got up and tried to put out the fires in the cabin... And because he had been doused with fire as well, he started like burning. And so he's like tearing off his clothes and he's just like fighting this fire, like miraculously, like this freaking superhero. And then it gets to be too much and the fire just starts to take over and he staggers out, gets in the snowmobile, gets onto the snowmobile. And when he sees Randy, he just like tells the whole story and he just like his wife and his mother are dead. He's been shot. The girls have been taken. And then he loses consciousness. Oh my gosh! Right? Is that not unbelievable? So, Randy, his brother, like puts him in the car and starts into town because he th- there's no reception out there, so it's not like he can call nine one one. And there's no he can't get in that there's no phone in the house because the house is burned down. So he the right. reception is so bad out there that he drives until he gets reception on his cell phone and find, finally reaches an area where they can call nine one one and tell the police where the car is, and that's when they basically start to follow the police find the girl, locate the girls luckily enough and start to follow them. And immediately wow. as soon as he reaches nine one one, he loses reception again and he pulls into a gas station and then calls nine one one from a payphone. phone. Ralph, uh, Ralph gets airlifted to a hospital. He survives. The two girls survive and the men are taken into custody, but the crime scene is horrific and it looks just like a war happened at the cabin the two men were identified as 26-year-old Vaughnell Taylor. He was the frizzy-haired man, and the tw- and 22-year-old Edward Deli. who's the guy with the Coke bottle glasses. Now, interestingly enough, these two men had previously served time at Utah State Penitentiary. Von L. Taylor had served time for aggravated burglary, and Deli had served time for arson.
1: Wow. Okay,
0: But criminologists. So they
1: really brought their two skills Right, together. Right.
0: And then police and, like, criminologists and everybody are trying to figure out how these guys could escalate to this. Like, from burglary and arson, like, they just jumped right into the murder part. Yeah. These two basically met each other at a halfway house. And then when they were released from prison, they were supposed to get jobs and reenter society. And they just basically yeah. were like, nope, we're not doing that. And December 14th. <sighs> These two walked away from the halfway house and hitchhiked to Oakley. And that's where the basically cabin was. they had been out
1: for a week. Yeah.
0: They had basically spent an oh entire gosh. week burglarizing homes and, like, stealing stuff and just, like, terrorizing things, breaking things. And just since this was an area where there were a lot of, like, holiday cabins and things like that, yeah. there was nobody in them. So they just went in and took what they wanted. So essentially, these two dudes basically wow. picked Oakley... Because Taylor's dad owned a cabin there. And Taylor, Von L. Taylor, was the one that the family passed on the road the first day. He had actually stalked the family and watched them for several days. Yeah. Including that trip into town on December 22nd. It was that point when police say he had seen the family leave and then broke into their house, showered, and put on Rolf's clothing. So basically these two dudes ate and napped and showered and they were pretty much like friggin Goldilocks and the three bears just like eating and eating the porridge and like testing everything out to see what was comfortable and they waited for the family to return and they stole the car at that point and they wanted to leave the area so they wouldn't get caught for the string of burglaries and that's when they decided to play out that whole thing with the family. Now, when they were looking through evidence of this case and exploring the cabin and kind of putting things together, they found a video camera that had recorded Deli and Taylor unwrapping all the family's Christmas presents, and it showed that Taylor was clearly the ringleader. So these two douchebags recorded themselves breaking into the cabin and opening all the Christmas presents mm, from the family. i will get you. <laughs> yeah, so anyway... After the events that happened, and the Aunt Claudia, who was Kay's sister, takes all the kids in and helps Rolf raise them. Uh, Friday, December 28th, at noon, the funeral for Kay and Beth happens, and the community comes together to offer their support to them. Then January 22nd, 1991, Taylor and Deli are charged with two counts of first degree murder, one count of attempted murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, aggravated assault, theft, arson, and failure to heed police signals to stop. Also, no. I like that last one. <laughs> that last one will put you right into the death penalty. Um, <laughs> at first, these two guys plead not guilty by reason of insanity.
1: But it's still two murder charges that he ple- pleaded guilty to, right? Yeah.
0: They are just basically, okay. like, think that they're smarter than everyone else right. at this point. Hey, let's, let's plead insanity. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> but the court orders an evaluation and shows both of them are legally sane and fit to stand trial. Like, nope. <laughs> Not gonna happen. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the lawyers then move to separate this into two trials and move out of the county. And the judge is like, nope. <laughs> Dismisses both that both Hmm. of those petitions as well so then these two guys are like crap now what are we gonna do we've all of our petitions have been dismissed (laughs) five months later taylor pleads guilty to murder charges in return for all of the other charges Mm -hmm. being dropped which i'm not really clear on why that would be except for to take death penalty off the table it doesn't say that but i'm assuming that that's what's going on yeah but with all that other stuff that would be the aggravating circumstances that would allow them to charge him and then put him to death taylor had actually killed both women he had shot Kay five times once in the side twice in the chest once in the shoulder once in the upper arm and the side shoulder shot passed through internal organs and that was what killed her he had actually they had multiple guns but the the gun that killed Kay was a 44 caliber gun Beth had been shot three times, once in the head, twice in the chest. The fatal shot, obviously, with her was in the head, and it was the same 44 caliber gun. And this is important because, remember how I said there were multiple guns, and the one guy was shot with the shotgun and it had the bird pellets in it. But um, the surviving family members of the T- Tita family take the stand, tell, <laughs> and then get this, Taylor testifies in his own defense. Oh boy! Because he thinks he's smarter. <laughs> this is. <laughs> do,
1: do not do this. Just uh, if you're ever on trial for a crime, do not testify in your own defense.
0: Like I can do this. I'm so smart. You can,
1: You cannot. You are
0: not. But this is a huge mistake. Obviously, he's super argumentative. He has memory lapses and absolutely no remorse. Mm. Which are like all these like huge like check right <laughs> check check. Guilty. (laughs) Here's a list of
1: things you shouldn't do when you're testifying in your own defense. First is testifying in your own defense. Don't do that.
0: And basically his attorney is like, hey, we're just throwing ourselves on the court's mercy. There's no question that he did it. Please don't give us the death penalty. Oh my gosh. Essentially, like that was his like whole defense. Yikes. There's no question that he did it. (laughs) Just don't kill him. Uh, The jury of seven men and five women deliberate for a very short period of time and come back with a guilty verdict. (laughs) <laughs> and they hand down the death sentence oh dun, dun, dun. they give it to taylor and they determine that he's going to get lethal injection at the same time though deli is also getting his due justice but he's pointing out that he refused to shoot rolf when ordered by taylor yeah and that he moved Lynne to the bedroom and brought the dog to her and the jury feels sorry for him and gives him a second degree murder charge okay But he gets life in prison with the possibility of parole. Okay. And so, obviously, they determined that he was kind of guilty to a lesser degree than Taylor. But the family doesn't agree with that. They think that both men were equally guilty and both should get equal time. And there's been a lot of debate on this case for this reason, that the one guy ended up getting the death penalty and the other got life in prison. Right. The family also filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the state because the two men were parolees. Right. Right. So they were not supervised properly and this was a preventable tragedy is what the lawsuit sort of implied that this was a problem with the Department of Corrections. They've failed to capture them, even though they had been made aware of the men's whereabouts. Get this. Taylor had called someone else on his injuring this whole crime spree thing. And told him about everything. Exactly what he was going to do and that he was going to kill somebody. And this man that he reported this to immediately reported Taylor's confession to him to officials. This guy. before he killed. (laughs) He had laid out his whole plan and called someone and told them what he was going to do. And this guy that he reported it to immediately called the police and was like, hey, this guy is a ticking time bomb. you got to get him. Right. And they didn't do anything.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah.
0: This was a guy at the halfway house that that Taylor had called. And the state failed to act in any way, so the story that Taylor had shared with this guy even included using the two young girls as shields prior to the crime like they knew specifically they had this planned out in detail september nineteen ninety two the state of Utah is held not liable for the murders created by Delhi and Taylor and the civil suit was dismissed and The reason for this is because Utah State shields the government from liability. Mm-hmm in instances like this because they don't want to go bankrupt.
1: Right.
0: If they were allowed to sue for anything, then there could potentially be thousands of lawsuits. Even though in this particular instance, it just seems like they had the information. Right. This dude called the guy at the halfway house. They knew what was going to happen and yet they didn't act. It seems crazy. You could
1: also prevent a civil suit in this scenario by actually doing your job.
0: Yeah. But Well, anyway, it's just, it's, it's a hot mess. Yeah. And, Taylor has actually appealed his lawsuit multiple times, claiming that autopsies showed that Taylor was actually factually innocent, even though he admitted to firing shots. He claims that all the fatal shots came from Delhi's gun. But, but they were all the BS. same gun, right? Yeah. B.S. 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 Taylor remains on death row for that precise reason. Um both Linay and Trisha are emotionally scarred from this whole experience. Yeah. Obviously. I put duh. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um Linay actually eventually gets a letter from Delhi in 2001. What? He says basically that he's super sorry. He says he's changed. He's not the same evil guy. He's sorry for the pain he caused. And Linay actually eventually responds to the letter and forgives Delhi. Wow. So she's like super generous, obviously. Yeah, she really is. The dad, Rolf, remarried three times after Kay's murder Wow. and then ends up marrying Kay's best friend, Donna. That was his last marriage mm. before he, he died of cancer in 2008. Wow. Now, Trisha, the oldest daughter, is now a divorced mom of two girls. She loves her life again. She says she's healed from the incident and doesn't let it define her, but it actually made her who she is today, so she can appreciate that much of it. And the son, Sean, got married. He's the father of three boys, and he now followed his father into sales and took over the family business. Lene married and divorced, then married her childhood sweetheart, mm-hmm. and now they have a blended family with nine kids together. Oh, boy. That's so many kids. <laughs> and she says life is a gift, and she's yeah. a survivor and all that good stuff. Um, Deli has not appealed his case. And it's unlikely he's going to be paroled anyway. Right. Even though he does have the opportunity, just the people that are looking at this case think that it's pretty unlikely that he will get that parole. Taylor has like, again, as I mentioned earlier, filed multiple appeals on this. Among some of his arguments is that the trial was, which I don't really know how that would make a damn bit of difference. What is that? Yeah. Was the, Family Mormon? Um I think they were. Just I mean it's Utah and it said they were a deeply religious families. Right. But um Right. Taylor did get a little ray of hope in two thousand nineteen. Evidence surfaced that showed that despite his guilty plea, the prosecution had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the bullets fired Wait. from his gun killed both Kay and Beth. And <laughs> this ruling does not send him home or just, give him a new trial. It just delays the execution. So this okay. is for the sentencing. This, this just is not this, for, like, the guilt.
1: Yeah, because he already pleaded, he pleaded guilty. he pled guilty. Yeah.
0: Um, so now he's waiting on a new trial that will delay the execution, and there's, he's sort of in limbo right now. This is distressing to a lot of people because Utah's accomplice liability law, there are multiple confessions in this, and then the victim's family has got to go through this all over yeah. again. Uh, the state of Utah maintains that Taylor is guilty and they are preparing for further litigation until they get the result that they are desiring in this instance. And last but certainly not least, and we'll keep you guys updated, this new trial or the new portion of the trial has not been, it's not taken place yet, so we don't know what's going on with that, but I'm sure it'll be in the news as soon as it happens. The family has since rebuilt the cabin and they, oh. Sean, and Tricia still go there with their aunts, uncles, oh. and cousins. They now call it Tita's Tranquility Cabin, and they're not going to let the events that happened there ruin it for them. That's sweet. So still kind of open case for the whole thing with Taylor. I don't think he's ever going to get out of prison. I don't think there's a question whether he's guilty or not, but there is some question as to what his punishment will be because... When they're unable to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the bullets from his gun fired and killed the two people, there is some question as to whether he will be able to get the death penalty or whether they will give it to him again. I don't know what the case is with that. We'll kind of hang out and wait and see for updates on that. Yeah. So I have a
1: question, and you may or may not be able to answer this. So say he gets a new trial for this, for the sentencing part. Does the state then have to present all of the evidence again in a new trial to make the case beyond a reasonable doubt that his gun actually did cause their deaths? Is that kind of how it would work?
0: I'm not exactly sure on this one. The information that was presented was not super clear. Okay. Um, And then when I tried to look it up online, there just wasn't—and this is an older case, so there just wasn't a ton of information out there about it anyway— But I am absolutely positive that when the case actually does take place, that they will give us more information as to what that is and and give us um, an update for the show.
1: Right. And that that could be like a Utah thing. It might not be a national thing. So, like, I don't I mean, maybe maybe it's something that's like a Utah state law or something that they have to do this for the sentencing part. I don't know.
0: Um, And there was some question, too, because there's two men and there's like a complex liability law. And there's some things within that particular state where both men are equally um, held responsible, even if one fires and the other one doesn't. There's something to that effect. Right. Okay. Um, So that's why he's not off the hook and declared innocent, per se, as much as they're just trying Uh to figure out sentencing because of the fact that it it just seems so egregiously unfair that the one guy that although the two were held responsible jointly as accomplices that one guy would get the death penalty and the other guy would just get life in prison with possibility. of Yeah. Well,
1: and they're not equally held responsible because one guy got clearly got capital and the other guy got second degree. Right. So So, it seems as
0: though given the factual circumstances of this case and the way the law works there, that both men should have gotten the same penalty. And I think that's what's going on and why this is being retried for that portion.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Wow. I hate that for that family because they're going to have to go through all of that again. And I mean, they're probably going to have to testify again. Yeah. And that's, you know.
0: I think, a balancing factor when you consider cases like this. And <sighs> it's just brutal. And then, you know, you got the parole that's happening with Delhi, and the family's going to have to sit through that every time he goes right. for a parole. So it's just yucky.
1: Yeah. That was super interesting, though. Right? And, and, like, you told it, you you did such a good job telling it, I felt like I was living in the scary movie. <laughs> it was, like, movie.
0: all kinds of little twists and turns. I know. And then it was, like, and then the third man shows up, and you're, like, who's the third I man? Is <laughs> it like, another what? what? It's the dad! Yeah. <laughs> that was wild. Yeah. That was so wild. So I can't believe you survived that. That's just unbelievable to me. And then, like, how lucky was he that it was only birdshot in that freaking rifle and not regular right. buckshot? So... Anyway, interesting, cool case, and it's. Yeah. Gl- I'm glad that the family was able to um, piece things together again and and rebuild the cabin and be survivors. Not let that. Ruin I'm glad them they were all. able to take it back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although I guarantee you they've got security measures in place now, cameras and sure, all kinds of other stuff. I would imagine.
1: Sure. Oh yeah.
0: Well, we're gonna wrap the podcast up for the day. Unless you have anything else to add.
1: I don't. That was really good.
0: Um, yeah. Hello. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, including what your take is on the whole DNA issue that we discussed in the first part of the show, please send us an email. We're at the BFDPodcast at com. I promise. We have a couple of emails. We will start reading emails again next show or the show after, hopefully. Awesome. And social media, Darcy?
1: We are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So you could also find us there and interact with us there and give us your thoughts.
0: Yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys.